Have you ever found yourself wondering about the role that Canadians played in old-time radio? Well, wonder no more. During the next 60 minutes, we'll delve into the careers of actors, writers, and directors who went abroad to find work, as well as those who stayed right here in Canada. Join me as together we explore Canadians in old-time radio. I'm Devin Wilkins, founder and president of CATRA, the Canadian Old Time Radio Alliance. You might want to have a look at our website. There are some interesting clips and lots of information up there. It's www.cotra, CATRA, so www.catra.ca. Well, tonight we have two episodes for the price of one for from our Made in Canada file. Actually, I guess you might say that it was made for Canada because I think what must have happened was that these episodes of Blair of the Mounties were made in or by the BBC for the CBC. We have parts one and two of Robbery at the Canada Western and those are dated June 6th and 13th, respectively, from 1938. Blair of the Mounties, the story of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. We present the 19th episode in Blair of the Mounties. Inspector Blair's old friend, Angus McGregor, one time Hudson's Bay factor at Fort McAllister, is now retired from service and is living in Vancouver. Our scene opens in the dusk of a summer evening. As the darkness gathers over the quiet waters of English Bay, we find Blair and Angus talking together in the garden of the McGregor home. Weel, no, Inspector. <laughs> it was much too good of you to drop in the next. I didn't expect you. Why not, Angus? Well, I was just reading the paper about the bank robbery in the city. I was thinking you'd be busy. <laughs> That's nothing to do with me. Thank goodness. <laughs> what? Are you no working today? Oh, yes, in a way, but crime in the city of Vancouver has nothing to do with us, unless we're invited to lend a hand. All we do nowadays is loaf round and look important. We're known in the guidebooks as the picturesque survival of other days. <laughs> we'll, we'll. Just think of that new. <laughs> uh, but, Mon Inspector, it's a very bad case. Would you know like to be reading the report? No, thanks. Had enough of bank robberies 20 years ago in Winnipeg. One of the queerest cases I ever ran across. Hmm, aye, aye. We'll know it's, it's a fine nest for a story. <laughs> Inspector, you know, I'm awful fond of mysteries <laughs> myself. <laughs> Angus, you're the most inquisitive old humbug I ever knew. <laughs> oh, well, here goes. You remember the old uh, Canada Western Bank in Winnipeg? Mm, I mind that wheel. On Portage Avenue. That's it. 
I was stationed in Winnipeg then. It was the spring of 1904. I was a sergeant at the time. Marshall was there, too. One morning, he came bursting into the office when I was working on the Sergeant, have you heard the news? News? No. For heaven's sake, shut that door. All right. But listen, Sergeant. There's been a robbery at the Canada Western Bank. Over 100,000 in currency. I don't care if they robbed 50 banks. What's that got to do with us? The job for the city police. But hold on, Inspector. They've arrested old Danny McBrennan. You know him, don't you? No, old Danny, rather. He used to be in the police. What on earth did they arrest Danny for? Well, he's the night watchman at the bank. They suspect him of complicity. Suspect old Danny? Why, that's ridiculous. Well, they've got him anyway. And Mason, the cashier, too. That's too bad, Marshal. I'd take my oath old Danny would never do a thing like that. That's what I think, too. Hold on a minute. Hello? Oh, yes, sir. Good morning. Canada Weston? Yes. Marshal just told me. No. No, I don't understand it either. Maybe some mistake. Yes. Yes, I'll do that, sir. Right away. Marshal. Yes? We're on this case. Inspector's just given me instructions to go down to jail and see Danny. Used to be in our outfit, and we've got to help him. I see. Yes, it'd be a nasty crack for us if they convict Danny. We'd never hear the last of it. What do you know about this case? Any details? Just a few. Last night at 11 o'clock, the cashier, Mason, was working late at the bank. He lives in the rooms above the bank anyway. All right. What about Danny? I was coming to that. About 11.05, Danny states that a man got out of a cab and walked across the pavement to the main door. Where was Danny? Outside on the corner. He was making his round. He, did he identify this man? Sure. He says it was the manager, Blake Fishborough. Fishborough. Yes, I know him. What then? Fishborough gave Danny a $10 bill and asked him to run along to the Craven Hotel and get him some cigars. That's practically all Danny's story. Well, what happened? The cashier, Mason, says that Fishborough came into the bank. He was wearing a heavy coat with a collar turned up. He told Mason to clear out and get to bed right away. Mason says the manager gave him the devil for being there so late. Then what? Why, when Danny got back, the manager had gone. He went upstairs and got Mason. Then Mason spotted a package of important bonds lying near the vault with a paper torn partly off one package. That made him suspicious. He opened the safe and found the currency gone. Well, but what does the manager say? He isn't in town. Skipped out? No. That's the funny part. He left for Portage La Prairie yesterday afternoon's train. He's on his way back now. The cast iron alibi. Quite sure about that? Not a chance of, of any doubt. At 11 o'clock last night, Blake Fishborough was attending a farewell supper in Portage. All the prominent people in town were there. It's a dead sure alibi. All right, let's go down and talk to Danny. This way, Sergeant. Morning, Danny. Good morning to you, Sergeant. Now, since I hear about you, Danny, robbing banks... Getting your name in the papers? I'm surprised at you. Ah, don't be making a joke of it, Sergeant. Sure, it's bad enough without that. Come on now, Danny. Brace up, my lad. Don't suppose anybody in the old crowd will ever believe this on you. We're all with you, Danny. We'll get you out of here if we have to start a war. Nah, it's fine to be talking, Sergeant, but there's, there's nothing you can do. Let's have your story anyway, Danny. Ah, sure, it's not much use. I've told it three times already. It's so crazy I'd hardly believe it myself. Come on, Danny. I want that story just as it happened. Start at the beginning. Well, all right. It was exactly five past eleven. I came out of the alleyway at the side of the bank. Where have you been? Well, just on my usual rounds. I start at eleven with the outside of the building, checking the doors and fire escapes. It takes about five minutes. All right. What happened when you came out of the alley? 
Begorry, there was a cab just thrown up, and Mr. Fishbury gets out of it. And I hurried up to meet him right at the front door. Be careful, Danny. You sure it was the manager? Of course. I take me day or north on it. He had a heavy coat on with a collar turned up. But I saw his face, and I heard the voice of him. Sure, now, don't I know him all of the seven years? All right, what next? Well, then he pulled out a ten-dollar bill, and he says to me, Danny, he says, I'm going into the office for a while. Go along to the Craven House and get me a half a dozen of them long tom cigars. Craven House? That'd be quite a way from the bank, eh? Sure, twelve blocks it is now, and me walking. But it's the only place they keep them cigars. How long did it take you? Oh, it was uh, twenty-five after eleven when I got back to the bank. And uh, when I got back, why, the office was all dark and not a sign of the manager. What did you do then? Well, I thought he must be upstairs in Mr. Mason at the cashier's room, so I went up. Mason was just getting ready for bed when I told him the manager was gone. He wouldn't believe me, and we both busted downstairs into the bank. And what did you find there? Nothing at first. Then Mason spotted a bundle of papers, bonds they were, just by the door of the vault. He picked them up. That was when he tumbled toward it. The vault had been opened. I see. So he reopened the vault, eh? That's right, Sergeant. And then he called me. There were bonds and papers thrown all over the floor. Oh, it was a devil of a mess, it was. No time lock on that vault? No, there's a talk of putting one on in. Well, most of the banks have them now, but uh, there's never been one in the old Canada Western. How many people know the combination? Uh, just Mr. Fishbury and Mess. I see. It's a bad spot for you, Danny. Aye. But I still don't see what right they have to arrest you. There's no tangible evidence against you. Just one thing, Sergeant. What is that? That ten-dollar bill Mr. Fishbury gave me for the cigars. It was a brand-new bill. It was one of the bunch that was supposed to have been put into the vault yesterday afternoon. Ah, I see. So the theory is that you and Mason opened the vault and got that money last night. Why, that's crazy. That may be crazy, but it's pretty hard to get away from that bill. Ah, bad cess to it. This is the... Truth, you're telling me, Danny? May I never speak a word again, Sergeant. It's the whole truth. And you're sure it was Blake Fishborough, the manager, you saw at the bank last night? I'd stake my life on it. And yet there are 30 or 40 prominent people who could swear that he was in Port Little Prairie at 11 o'clock last night. It's certain he's here th there this morning. He must have been there, Danny. Aye, it looks that way. But I tell you, I saw him here last night. They never believe you, Danny. Uh, that's what I'm thinking. All right. Marshal's having a talk to Mason, the cashier. I've got to go now, Danny. Cheer up now. We'll find a way to get you out of this. Thank you for trying anyway, Sergeant. Marshal. Yes, Sergeant? Get anything important? Afraid not. Just the same thing over again with a few more details. What do you think of this man, Mason, the cashier? Hang if I know. His story's straight enough. It fits in with Danny's story about the manager, Fishbury, coming in just after 11 o'clock. He says the manager called him down for being in the bank at that hour that he went straight up to his quarters, leaving the manager in the office. Yes, hard to start a theory. Why should these two men invent that story? It's such a poor defense. The most impossible thing they could have thought of, which, of course, is all in their favor. This cashier was in trouble. Owed money in oh. large amounts. He had the combination of the safe. Yes, I wouldn't pay much attention to his story alone, but I can't get round Danny. He's a simple-minded old fellow with a tremendous sense of duty. Can't see him as a criminal accessory at all. I believe he's absolutely positive he saw this manager. And yet, the manager was in Portage at the time. By the way, did you see him just now? Yes, he's back. I had to talk to him. He seems like a man in a dream. There's no doubt about that alibi. At 11 o'clock, he was making a speech in full view of 30 or 40 people who've known him for years. 
Did you ask him about this statement of Danny's? Yes, but he just smiled at me in a puzzled way. I felt rather foolish. Because, Marsh, there's no getting away from it. That man was in Portage last night and not at the bank. Yes, there's no getting away from that. Take it the other way around. Question of identity here at the bank. Yes, it's just as certain at this end. Even if Danny made a mistake, Mason the cashier saw the man in the light and talked to him. Also, he had the combination of the vault. We don't know that, Marshal. Suppose Danny made a mistake, but Mason didn't. Oh, you mean it might have been a confederate of Mason's who fooled Danny? No, that's no use. If Mason wanted to rob the bank, why would he need a confederate? That's true. Another thing. I can't get over the finding of that package of bonds outside the vault. And what puzzles me still more is the disorder in the vault itself. That seems to favor Mason. Why's that? Can you imagine any trained bank official throwing stuff around like that? Not unless he was done on purpose. It doesn't make sense. Any theory, Sergeant? Yes. There's only one that would fit this case and explain everything. But it needs just one little link of some sort before I'd even talk about it. Hello? Who's this? Oh, Mr. Blair. Oh, Mr. Blair. Why, hello, Bridget. What's the matter? Oh, I just come from seeing Danny. Is there anything you can do to save him? We're doing our best, Bridget. Oh, but he never done it, Mr. Blair. You know that. Shouldn't I ran all the way from Mr. Fishbury's when I heard Mr. it? Mr. Fishbury's? What are you doing there? Oh, don't you know? I'm his housekeeper. Him being a bachelor and all, I go into work there every day. That's interesting. Did you see him last night? No, sir. Not after I packed his things to go to Portridge. Hmm. Did he take a big fur-lined coat with him? Aye. It's funny. He took three suits of clothes and two overcoats. Three? Uh, here, hold on. What were they? Well, there was the clothes he was a-wearing... And then his dress clothes and the suit he wears to the bank in the daytime. Did you pack that one? Sure I did. I don't know why. Holy smoke, that's got it. What is it, Sergeant? That's what I wanted. We've got him. Come on, hurry up, Marshal. Well, for mercy's sake. You have heard episode 19 of Blair of the Mounties. The second and concluding part of this story will be told in episode 20 of this series. Mounties, a story of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. We present the 20th episode in Blair of the Mounties, being the second part of the story of the Canada Western Bank robbery. In the first part of our story, news of the robbery of over $100,000 in currency breaks. Two men are arrested on suspicion. Mason, the bank cashier, and old Danny McBrennan, the night watchman, an ex-member of the Mounties. Blair goes into action in defense of old Danny. As our scene opens, we find Blair and Marshall discussing the case at police barracks. But, Sergeant, you mean to say that you have the solution to this thing? Yes, I've got the solution. And you know who did it? Yes, I know who did it. Well, but I don't follow all this. Now, have a little patience, Marshall. I've given the lead to the city police. It's their job, you see. And if my idea works out, we ought to know something in a little while. In the meantime, let's go over the whole case. Perhaps you'll see what I'm driving at. Now, uh, what happened first? And mind you, don't miss the little thing. The first thing was that Danny McBrennan, night watchman at the bank, states that at 11.05 last night, 
The manager, Blake Fishbridge, drove up to the bank in a cab. Anything suspicious in that statement? Well, not suspicious, but unreasonable. Fishborough was proved to be out of town at that time, attending a public function where lots of prominent people saw him. And what do you conclude from that? That Danny was either lying or that he was mistaken. Or that he wasn't mistaken and wasn't lying. But, but, but that's impossible. Well, we'll pass that up for the present. What's the next item in Danny's statement? He said that the bank manager gave him a $10 bill, sent him to the Craven Hotel for some cigars. The Craven House is 12 blocks away from the bank, and it took Danny 20 minutes. Yes. Now we switch over to the statement of Mason, the cashier. He was working late in the bank. He too swears that Fishborough, the manager, came in at about five past eleven and chased him off to bed. Mason immediately went upstairs to his quarters over the bank, or so he says. It's funny that neither of these men remarked on their surprise at seeing the manager back from his trip. Bravo, Marshal, that's an important point. It brings up a possibility, but we'll pass that one too. Let's get on. What next? The next thing is that Danny gets back with the cigars and finds the manager gone. That makes him suspicious. He goes upstairs and gets Mason, the cashier. Mason spots a package of bonds that must have come out of the safe, opens the vault, and finds the currency gone. All right. The city police arrest both Danny and Mason on suspicion. What's the case against them? The case against Mason is that he knew the combination of the vault. He slept above the bank and had no alibi. In fact, he admits being there at the time. Yes. Now the case against Danny. The case against Danny looks bad. The $10 bill he claims the manager gave him for the cigars was one that had been put into the vault when it was closed that afternoon. It's a mixed-up business. Yes, anyhow, here's Andy McCross of the city police in a deuce of a hurry. Let's hear what he has to say. Good morning. Hello, Max. What can I do for you? You can give me an explanation. The whole city's swarming with mounties checking up on the Canada Western case. You don't tell me. You better call him off or there's going to be trouble. Let me call him off? Well, I'm not running the force, Mac. No, but you're at the bottom of all this foolery. I tell you, we got that night watchman, Danny McBrennan, cold, and Mason, too. They're remanded for trial at the assizes. So I heard. Well, you see, Mac, Danny used to belong to our lot. And naturally, the boys are out to do what they can. But if you have a case against them, of course, it's all right. Well, what's wrong with the case, anyway? Better sit down, Mac. We were just talking it over. What do you think of this story that Mason and Danny told? You mean about the manager himself stealing that money and giving Danny the $10 bill for the cigar? Yes. You don't mean to tell me you believe that story. I do, Mac. Oh, the thing's ridiculous. Yes. Too ridiculous to be a lie. What do you mean? Just think it over, Mac. Mason the cashier is a pretty smart chap. If he was cooking up a story, it's funny he wouldn't think up a better one than that. I don't see anything funny in it. All right. We'll have the best lawyer in Canada to defend old Danny. Wait till he starts on that case of yours. I have an idea you'll see the joke. See here, Sergeant. Have we not always worked with you before noon? Yes, I know what's coming, Mac. All good policemen should stick together. Well, eh? but no... Now, forget it, Mac. That stuff is out. We're working for Danny. I was bluffing just now when I talked about hiring a lawyer. That won't be necessary. Why not? Because I think we're going to have this case cleaned up before night. And Danny will be a free man. No, see here, Sergeant. If you have a line on anybody for this thing, I have a right to know it. I wouldn't be too sure of that, Mac. But I'm sure of it. And another thing... You've got 50 men out on this watching the roads and the trains out of the city and checking up hotels. And if you don't pull them off, there'll be a complaint into the commissioner of a noon from the mayor of the city. See here, Andy McCross. You try to pull that comic policeman stuff on me, I'll make you and your whole outfit look like 30 cents before the day's out. But hold on now. What's the trouble? The trouble is the arrest of Danny McBrennan. He was in the police. There's a dozen or more of us here on this station that served with Danny through the storm and the cold up in the Arctic. Danny never told a lie in his life. You've got a nerve to arrest a man like Danny. Oh, no, I begin to see. Well, don't strain yourself, Mac. 
Well, what is it you want, anyway? I want Danny out of that jail. But listen here, I cannot do that, Sergeant. They won't allow bail. It's a serious charge. I'm and... not. I'm not talking about bail. Release him to our custody. We'll be responsible. If he's wanted, he'll be here. Then we'll help you on this case. Well, maybe we might fix it up for you. Better get busy and send Danny down here. I want to talk to him. I'll do my best, Sergeant. But man to man now, could you know just give me a line on what you got on this case? Not while Danny's in jail, Mac. But I'll do this much. See this man wanted notice? Sure. We'll have it ourselves. There's so many of them that I haven't had the time to be studying them all. Well, just take a good look at this one. It's important. Hmm. John McNaughton, alias William Grover, wanted for burglary and assault in St. Paul, Minnesota. Yes, he caught the body legally two days ago. He's up here, Mac. And while we're talking of him, he's the man we have all the patrols after. It's an immigration case, so... You can forget about that complaint. Did you pick him up? No, we let him through. Wanted to see what he was after. Take a look at his picture, Mac. Forget the mustache. Ever see him before? Well, no. Can't say that exactly. Know him yourself? No, but he's very like somebody I'm interested in. But what's that got to do with a Canada Western case? Never mind that now. Go and get Danny. Well, I let him out on a public order for questioning. And in the meantime, perhaps I can feel a relief for custody. All right, hurry up. Look here, Sergeant. I wish you'd tell me something. What is it, Martin? Is this just a bluff, or has this man McNaughton really got anything to do with the Canada Western case? I think he's the man who got that $100,000, Marshal. But what have you got on him? Nothing yet. Only that he uh, looks like the sort of man who would do it. What? Looks like? Oh, but look here, Sergeant. You can't pull a man for that. No, he'd want something more. But the whole basis of this crime is personal appearance. Just think a minute. Fishborough's alibi depends on that. And the story of Mason and Danny rests on the fact that the robber looked like the manager. Yes, there's something in that. Well, never mind that now. Let's go and have lunch. Danny will be here when we get back, and it's going to be a very amusing afternoon. I tell you, I have to see him. Sure didn't he send for me? Here's Danny, Sergeant. Oh, hello, Danny. Come in. How are you feeling? Well, you know, Sergeant, it... It was mighty fine of you to get me out of that jail. That's all right, Danny. But listen now. It's it's not over yet. And don't you be troubling about me. I can I can face the music, Peter. I know, Danny. But you won't have to do that. They've got you out. You're going to stay out. Now, um, just answer me one question. When you searched the manager's office last night, what did you find? Oh, there weren't a thing out of place. But in that little room behind the office. Get this down, Marshal. Well, yes, it it. It's a little room with a, with a sofa in it and, and, a, and a wash basin. What did you find there? Well, there was a grey suit thrown on the sofa. It's Mr. Fishbury's. Sure, I hung it up on the stand. That's all. Did you phone McCross, Marshal? Yes. I told him to ask Mr. Fishbury to go over to the city police station for an interview. He'll be there by now. All right. And what about that other thing? I fixed that up, too. Sent for Scythe and Palmer down with a warrant to arrest John McNaughton in room 47, Craven Hotel. If he was there, they should have him down to the city police headquarters by now. Good. We ought to be hearing from our friend Mac pretty soon. What can they do without any evidence, Sergeant? And we'd better be going down. McCross is expecting you. No, I'm going to stay here, Marshal. I'm interested to hear what happens when that bank manager sees McNaughton. But what about all this evidence? Hadn't we better get it into shape? Somehow I don't think we'll need it, Marsh. Not at present, anyway. If those two men come together, I believe we'll get the whole story without any questioning. Sergeant... Hello? Hello, Mac. What's wrong? Well, I never saw such a thing in my life. What? We got the bank manager down to the station, and we were stalling around waiting for you. 
And when the door flew open, and then boys, you was brought in, McNaughton. Good. What happened? Ah, oh, come away now, you can find what happened. This fellow McNaughton's the dead spitting image of Fushborough, where there's a like as two peas. But what happened? <laughs> they flew at their throats. And when I got him apart in five minutes, we had the whole story. Listen, who is this McNaughton fellow? He might be the twin brother of the other man. Not only might be, but he is. Did you get that money? Sure, we got the most of it. The boys find it down in McNaughton's room. Well, that's that. Come on, Danny, my lad. We'll go down and make out the release for you. I will not. Listen now, Wendy McCross. I'm going out for a drink with Sergeant Blair. Go away and get your dirty papers. Bring him into the office and wait till I get back. Well, whatever you say. Hold on now, Sergeant. There's just one or two things I can't get in this case. Is this McNaughton really twin brother to Fishborough? Yes, he's his brother. He tried to blackmail the manager. Fishborough was in trouble, so he planned that robbery. Well, what about that new $10 bill he gave Danny? Or rather, I suppose it was the brother who gave it to him. How did he get it before the safe was robbed? He got it out of the bundle that came in that day. But the teller checked the numbers. Checked them, yes. He looked at the starting and finishing numbers. I see. What's the importance of the grey oh, suit? Oh, that wasn't important. Just the link that put me onto the plot. Fishborough took that grey suit for his brother to put on. The brother didn't use it. But when he got to the bank, he threw it out of the grip to make room for the money. Yes, it all fits in. Yes. Come on, Danny. I'll be with you, Sergeant. You have heard episode 20 in Blair of the Mounties. Tune in for the next episode in this series entitled The Goose Lake Robbery. From our Canadians Abroad file, we have a bit of music for you this time. It's the Grand Old Opry time from January 21st, 1950, featuring Liverpool, Nova Scotia's very own Hank Snow. It's Grand Old Opry time! with Rod Grassfield, Minnie Pearl, and starring Red Foley. Have you ever passed a part of for the grand bird of Liverpool? A rhythm has a kitchen shine fan. People get the grind and they clap their hands. If you the food, you pull your leg. Chattanooga shoe shine boy. He charges you a nickel just to shine one shoe. He makes the old style of leather look like new. You feel as though you want to dance when he gets through. He's a great big bundle of joy. He pops a boogie boogie rag. Chattanooga shoe shine boy. It's a wonder that the rag don't tear the way he makes it pop. Listen to him 
Somebody just drifted in and wants attention. Well, I should say it is somebody. It's Hornwall's most eligible bachelor, Rod Blankfield. <laughs> Thank you, man. Glad to be here tonight. I'm telling you, Bond, Dad, it's cold outside. Flitter, it, it's just plumb cold, Mr. Foley. Yeah. I'll have you know you don't realize it, but you are looking at an artist. You. I pay artist service, I order me. You're a painting artist, Brian? Yes, sir, I'm a painting artist, and I opened me up, uh, last week opened me up a studio because I wanted folks to buy my pictures and hang them up on the walls there in Hornwall. I put up a sign that says, My praises by critics is widely sung. They say I'm an artist that ought to be hung. <laughs> well, sir, no sooner than I had got on my artist outfit there that I painted, and you know, I got my brushes out. My name ain't Fuller neither, and I sure don't. Got my brushes out and everything. My gal Susie come running in there. She said, Rodney, I want my picture painted the worst way. I said, Susie, you couldn't have picked a better man to do it. <laughs> Susie took one look at some of my samples of my work there, and she stopped in front of one of the canvases there, and she said, Rodney, this would be a beautiful portrait. This here is, it's got such, oh, such soul, such, such expression, such expression. I said, oh, flitter, Susie, that there ain't no picture. That's where I clean my brushes. <laughs> Who they got those sense? She ain't got the damn sense. I get so mad at her sometimes. I could just eat a, a banana. <laughs> Finally, 
as she stopped in front of one of my pictures there, she said, Rodney, this here would be a good picture of your Uncle Sipe if it wasn't so blurry and jumpy. Why is it so blurry and jumpy? And I told her, I said, why, Flitter, Susie, I, Uncle Sipe had a few too many the other day, a few too many when he come in to get the picture painted. He had a little mountain view there. And I says, I had to paint him with the hiccups. <laughs> Well, to the night's guest is one of the most colorful fellows we've ever known, and one of the nicest, I might add. He was born in Canada and shipped to sea as a cabin boy when he was 12. He was a lumberjack in Oregon at 15 and a horse wrangler at 16. He bought a guitar for $15 and went all through Halifax, picking and singing, and finally was hired at a radio station. He joined the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation in 1934, and in 1937, one of the big recording companies heard him, and he's been making successful records ever since. Folks, give one of your biggest and heartiest welcomes to Hank Snow. Here's Hank. <laughs> Hank, my friend, we're, we're glad to have you with us here tonight, and uh, we want to hear you sing. What's it going to be, huh? Uh, it's going to be Nobody's Child. Nobody's Red. Child. It's a fine one. Let's hear it. I was slowly passing an orphan's home one day And stopped there just a moment Just to watch the children play Alone a boy was standing and when I asked him why, he turned with eyes but could not see, and he began to cry. I'm nobody's child, I'm nobody's child, I'm like a flower just growing wild. Kisses and a no daddy smile. Nobody wants me. I'm nobody's child. No mother's arms to hold me or soothe me when I cry. Sometimes it gets so lonely here. I wish that I could die. I walk the streets of heaven where all the blind can see. And just like all the other kids, there'd be a home for me. I just can't seem to figure out why the folks all pass me by. Cause I know that it's true that God takes little blind children with him in the sky. And they tell me that I'm oh so pretty. And they seem to like my big curls of gold. But then they take some other little child and I'm left here all alone. I'm nobody's child. I'm nobody's child. I'm like a flower just growing wild. No mommy 
always kisses and no daddy smiles. Nobody wants me. I'm nobody's child. Oh, it's a mighty pretty song. Mighty pretty there, Hank Snow. Here's Wally Fowler now and his famous Oak Ridge Quartet. We're mighty glad to welcome the boys back to the fold, and they're singing one of their better spirits called Lead Me to That Rock. Fall search among the sheep, my brother. God has been a shelter for me. You will find him there, so I am told. For those he loves to keep, my brother. God has been a shelter for me. Why don't you lead me to that rock that is higher than I? Oh, lead me to that rock. Yes, lead me to that rock. Why don't you lead me to that rock that is higher than I? Why don't you leave me to the rock to the rock that's all higher than I? Why don't you leave me to the rock to the rock that's all higher than I? Why don't you leave me to the rock to the rock that's all higher than I? Thou hast been a shelter for me. Boom, 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 boom. See, we can hear Uncle Eggie McEwen's accordion playing low and soft like back there. It sort of reminds us that it's for him time. That means, of course, a few quiet moments of music and meditation. You'll find tonight's hymn on page 67 of your brown hymn book, so sing along with me if you'd like to on a little song called Cleanse Me. <laughs>
search me, O God, and know my heart today. Singers for a little close harmony here. Marvin Hughes, you give the boys a little introduction there. To, uh, are you from Dixie? Hello, there, stranger. How do you do? There's something I'd like to say to you. Don't be surprised. You recognize I'm no detective, but I'm just surprised. You're from the place where I long to be. Your smile and face seems to say to me, You're from our land, a sunny homeland, Tell me, can it be? Are you from Dixie? I said from Dixie, Where the fields are part and beckon to me, I'm glad to see you, Tell me how be you, And the friends I'm longing to see, If you're from Alabama, Tennessee, or Carolina, any place below the Mason-Dixon line Then you're from Dixie Hooray for Dixie Cause I'm from Dixie too Are you from Dixie? I said from Dixie Where the fields are part And beckon to me You're like a single Tell me how be you And the friends I'm longing to see If you're from Alabama, Tennessee Or Carolina any place below the Mason-Dixon line Then you're from Dixie Hooray for Dixie Cause I'm from Dixie too Singers and a song like that makes me mighty glad I'm from Dixie. Well, yes. I agree with you 100%, Grant, just as I agree that for the timeliest news of the doings down at Grinder Switch, everybody should listen to Cousin Minnie Take Claude Sharp, for instance. Hey, look, he's just cute as a bug's ear. <laughs> Looks a little like a bug's ear, too, come think of it. I'll tell you right now, though, you know, we play a little game up here, all of us. I chase the fellers, and they run away from me, and then the fellers run away from me, and I chase them. <clears throat> But the idea is that if I catch one of them, he's supposed to kick me. One day I caught Red Foley. 
And you never seen a fella so shy and embarrassed. <laughs> he was. He is so shy he paid Jack Stapp four dollars to kiss me in his place. <laughs> Kissing me as long as I've got my fella Hezzy. Oh, Hezzy keeps saying I'm all the world to him. <laughs> and then he stops telling me about how the world's in such an awful shape. <laughs> well, I went to Brother's room to call him for breakfast this morning, and oh, it's been cold at Grindy Switch where we say it. And I went up to Brother's room. Well, it has. It's cold. And I went to Brother's room to call him for breakfast, and, oh, it is late. It must have been daylight. And there was Brother with ten quilts over him. But he had his feet hanging out the bed. Them feet were so froze, they were just blue. And I said to him, Brother, why don't you put your feet under the covers? And he said, what? Bring them cold old things in bed with me? <laughs> Brother's so smart, I declare. It runs in our family. Well, to the uncle. He's done run out by the time it got to me. Uncle Nabob don't seem to mind the cold weather so much, though. Now, I don't exactly get the connection, but he says that you never hear tell of an automobile freezing up if it had enough alcohol in it. <laughs> Poor Uncle Nabob and Ambrosie washed his long-handed underwear and hung them out in the cold, and they frizzed just stiff on the line. And poor Uncle Nabob almost freezed to death before they got dry. <laughs> Maybe Aunt Ambrosie oughtn't to wash the underwear with Uncle Nabob still in them. <laughs> yes, sir, Rodley. Rodney, Miss Mamie. Yes, Rodney. You, yeah. How are you? Fine, thank you. Well, I'm glad to see you. Did I understand you to say that the air was a little nippy and grinder sweet? Nippy? Why, Rodney? It was the arm's reach below zero. How much below? Twenty below. <laughs> Stop that, woman. <laughs> Shucks, Minnie, if it don't get no colder than that in Hornwall, I'm telling you the truth, we get the spring fever in Hornwall when it's only twenty below. In Hornwall, the tea kettle spouts steam icicles. <laughs> You ought to hear, you ought to hear it out singing tea kettle, Rodney. Singing tea kettle? Yeah. Well, that ain't nothing to brag about. A lot of people got singing tea kettle. Flitter, yeah. anybody. Got a singing tea kettle. But our singing tea kettle was singing, Baby, it's cold outside. I oughtn't, I oughtn't to stay. Baby, it's cold outside. <laughs> well, it... <laughs> it ain't so hot tonight. It's cold outside. Oh, baby, it's... That's all right, Rodney. Well, that was pretty cold. <laughs> you say it is cold in Hornwall, Rodney. Hey, I'm telling you the truth. It was pretty cold in Hornwall last week, Miss Minnie. And when my poppy come home and found my twin brothers old Pete and repeat in front of a roaring fire there, he just got plum mad. He just mad he could add a goat burger. Well, why would you... I'd be mad just because Pete and Repeat were standing in front of a roaring fire when he come home. We didn't have no fireplace. <laughs> Ain't that Rodney, I had a... <laughs> Rodney, I was worried about Brother. You know, this cold weather, he got awful sick. 
sure enough. Oh, Brother C. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. I've, had, I've just been a sniffing. I've took any his and everything. Is that right? Just been a sniffing and a snorting all day. Well, I went up town and got Brother some medicine, but it like killed him. It <laughs> did? Yes. Oh, well, why? Well, it was the medicine. Heard him it is the directions on the bottle. Oh. They'd take it two nights to run in and skip the night. <laughs> That is mad them nights he took it a running, but them nights they had taken skipping. I like to kill, brother. <laughs> Come on up here, Hank. What you gonna do for us this time, buddy? I wonder where you are tonight. I wonder where you are tonight. Pretty Hank Snow. Well, I see it's almost time to leave you folks now, but I'd like to sing a brand new one here called Careless Kisses. Your careless kisses, your careless kisses are causing me to careless for you. Your careless kisses, your careless kisses Makes me wonder if your heart is careless too You tell me it's nothing You only kiss my friends Hello, please tell me, darling How many people can I know who share your kisses? Your careless kisses That's causing me to careless for you This 
program was previously released by NBC, the national broadcasting company for listeners in the United States, and rebroadcast for our servicemen and women overseas. This is the United States Armed Forces Radio Service, the voice of information and education. snow song for you called The Law of Love. The law of love has ruled again, dear. You said goodbye and went your way in chains of sorrow. You have bound me I'm a prisoner of your love today You said your mind had reached the verdict You've been the judge right from the start The sentence that you gave me, darling Was a life of tears and a broken heart Every star up yonder I've watched the moon In heaven so bright They seem to share The pain you left me That lingers in my heart Someday bring back the key And open up this lock of love, dear And let this weary heart go free That'll do it for me. Thank you so much for listening. Have yourself a wonderful week and see you next time. Bye for now. Thank you.
If you've enjoyed the shows you've heard during the past hour, be sure to tune in again next week, same time, same station, when once again, we'll listen to programs that are remembered today thanks to the involvement of Canadians in old-time radio. This is Devin Wilkins speaking.